Good morning again. Uh, hey, so we are in week four of our series entitled uh, The Real R-E-A-L Christmas. Um, we believe wholeheartedly that because this is Jesus's season, because this is Jesus's holiday, it's impossible to remove him from it, no matter how hard the world tries. And the world tries. Each and every year, uh, it gets more and more, this holiday commercialized, where we move further and further and further away from the gospel message, the real story of Christmas. And so we feel that we have some sort of obligation to take it back. Uh, and so that's what we're doing. Now, now, you might have the question, it's a question that I have asked myself uh, leading up to this series and actually going through this series, is why movies? Why are we talking about movies? Why are we taking time to talk about something very secular and very uh, worldly in, in a time that's supposed to be kind of really holy uh, and, and kind of set apart? And so, so here's, here's the deal. Um, we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we tend to speak differently than the world. We say things differently, and at times it kind of sounds like a different language. And so as the world has drifted further and further and further away from the truth, God's word, uh, for us to go and take back this holiday by speaking the Christian language and only the Christian language, I think that the world would look at us kind of funny, kind of silly. The Apostle Paul, when he was in Athens, uh, is Acts chapter uh, 17, he's kind of finds himself in a similar situation. He was going to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's, he's in uh, a place uh, with the Greeks, and he was going to proclaim the truth about Jesus, but because this group had no concept of one sovereign God, for him to preach the gospel the same way he preached it to the Jews, uh, it would have been useless. And so he takes his message, and he contextualizes it. He speaks in a language that the Greeks can understand, and guess what happens? He starts dialogue with them in a way that allows them to share the hope, the love, the joy, the peace of Jesus Christ. That, in part, is what we are trying to do by talking through these movies. We're not trying to be super gimmicky. That's not our hope. We simply want to have a conversation about the gospel using worldly things so that we were, when we're out in the world, we can have similar conversations with folks who will begin to understand exactly what this story is all about. And so we've done that by looking at, uh, I think, a set of really, really good movies. We started with The Christmas Story, one of my favorites. Uh, we had The Elf. Uh, last week was How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and this week is the most classic of all Christmas movies that we are going to go through, It's a Wonderful Life. So I need to know kind of what we're working with here. Uh, who has seen It's a Wonderful Life? Raise your hand. Okay. Who has not seen It's a Wonderful Life? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. Who has watched It's a Wonderful Life, but you watched it this week for the first time? No one? Okay, we had several, uh, several first service that had watched it the first time this week. So that kind of was where I fall into. I had seen parts and pieces of this movie, but I had never sat through the entire thing. And so, so I sat down this week uh, kind of doing some homework, figuring if I'm going to preach about a movie, I should probably watch the movie. And so I have some general observations about It's a Wonderful Life. First... There are parts in this movie that I have known and I have, I've seen in other places my entire life that I had no idea were a part of this movie. There's a lot of quotable lines and, and memorable scenes from this movie that I didn't associate with It's a Wonderful Life. So as I'm watching, I'm like, hey, I've heard that. I've seen that. Like, like even like just random shots that they would show, I'm like, that's familiar to me. The second general observation is that I did not expect 
to be ugly crying at my desk when the movie ended. <laughs> that threw me off. Uh, I came in early Monday or Tuesday of this week uh, before anyone got in the office and I wanted to watch the movie and so I was watching it and, and I, you know, I'm enjoying it, getting into it and the end of the movie comes and, and I'm not a crier. I really am not. I was a wreck. I was so thankful no one else was in the office because it would have been super embarrassing. It hit me in ways that I was not expecting. And so, so let's talk about what the movie is. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, I'm going to give you a little bit of a synopsis and this is going to be kind of um, I'm a spoiler alert. However, this movie is 75 years old. You've had time to see it, okay? So, the movie is about a gentleman by the name of George Bailey, who his entire life puts the needs of others before his own. He risked his life at the very beginning of the movie to save his brother's life. He missed a trip to Europe to run his dad's business after his dad had a stroke. He missed college to keep the business from being dissolved after his father had passed away. He even gave his honeymoon money away to help his customers. By the world's definition, by the world's definition, this is a story about a really, really, really good man. Which, right off the bat, brings up the age-old dilemma. Uh, why do bad things happen to really good people? George has every reason to be frustrated with life because he's doing everything he can to, to do the right thing, and yet life just kept throwing him curveball after curveball after curveball. He could not catch a break. And the straw that finally broke the camel's back was when his uncle lost $8,000 of his company's money. Now, $8,000 is a ton of money today. Any idea how much $8,000 would have been valued at uh, in 1940? $140,000. That's what he lost. And so you can imagine, like put yourself in George's shoes, that would have been room and reason to panic, and that's exactly what he does. He begins to kind of weigh his options. He revisits everything that's happened in his life up until this point, and he gets to a place where he makes a decision that so many Americans make each and every year. He decides that he's worth more dead than alive. And so he plans to take his life. I'm stepping into waters today that I am not at all comfortable stepping into. They are complicated, they are tricky, and if I'm being completely honest and vulnerable, at times they hit a little bit too close to home. This movie has a ton of powerful, powerful messages, and we could have taken this sermon about a dozen different ways, but at its core, this is a movie, this is a story about someone who had pretty significant mental health issues. And if we're not ready to diagnose him with a mental health disorder, which we probably shouldn't because we're not doctors, we can at least admit that he's going through a mental health crisis. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about mental health. Let me give you some statistics to kind of get your mind going before we move into this, because it's, it's, it's maybe more common, more of a big deal than maybe you even realize. The National Mental Health Alliance or Institute of Mental Health says that one in five adults, so 20% of our population, live with mental illness. 
20%. John Hopkins actually has it even higher. They say that one in four or 25% suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year. 25%. Now, now this next stat blew my mind. According to the CDC, more than 50%, more than half of the U.S. population will be diagnosed with some sort of mental health disorder in their lives. Half. One of two. Which means that if you haven't ever dealt with mental health issues, then, then, then odds are you're going to, or the person next to you will. Half of the population. Second leading cause of death from those between the ages of 10 and 34, which is a significant portion of this church, the second leading cause of death is suicide. It's the 10th leading cause of death overall. Overall. You want to be holiday specific? For a lot of us, this holiday season is one of joy and happiness and fun and hope. We get excited about Christmas, but there's a large portion of our population who would disagree. 24% of those diagnosed with a mental health disorder, so again, half of the population, 24% of those say that this season makes their condition a lot worse. 40% say that it makes it somewhat worse that the holiday season actually makes their lives more difficult. Whether you realize it or not, mental health, mental wellness is a common, predominant issue in our culture. And yet, yet, we, the church, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. Preachers don't preach about it. Church members don't acknowledge it, or, and I think this is actually even more dangerous, we talk about it, or we acknowledge it, or we look at it through the lens of stigmas that we, the church, have added to it. We begin to see these conditions, these real disorders, through the lens of these stigmas or perceptions that we have put on them. And so today, I want to address them. I want to talk about them. Some of the stigmas that we as church, the evangelical church in this world, specifically the United States, the stigmas that we have placed around mental health. So the church and mental health. The first stigma here is that mental health, mental illness, is directly correlated to one's lack of faith. If I had a dollar for every time I thought that about myself or have heard that growing up, I'd be an incredibly rich man. I always, always heard, and sometimes I believed, that when you're dealing with depression, anxiety, whatever it is you're dealing with, well, well you need to, you should pray more. You, you know what? You're, you're really depressed. You better open up God's word. It'll fix everything. That, that, that's the stigma that we put on. Now, now if, if, let's talk about the truth, because I, I don't think this is entirely accurate. I believe that a lack of faith can lead to mental illness, right? Let's stop there. I absolutely believe that there have been times in my life when because I wasn't in step with my relationship with Jesus Christ that my mental health struggled. I believe there are situations here, you in this room, where that's happened, right? Because we haven't stepped into our relationship with Jesus, that causes our mental health to struggle. So it definitely is a part of it. But, but, not all mental illness is related in any way to one's relationship to Jesus Christ. 
Just because you are struggling with your mental wellness does not mean that you don't believe. In fact, I believe that you could have a faith that, move, that moves mountains and still struggle with mental health. I think it could be both. And so you have to understand how dangerous the proposition is when someone tells you over and over again that because you're dealing with anxiety, because you're dealing with depression, because you're dealing with some sort of disorder, that you have a lack of faith. It's extremely discouraging. When I, I can't believe any more than I do. I can't pray any more than I do. I can't be in the word any more than I am, and I'm not okay. You can have faith you can have faith that moves mountains and still struggle. And, and there, listen, this is where it gets really good. There's biblical precedent for this. First Kings chapter 19, um, verses 1 through 5, says this. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Now, now you Google some of the, the symptoms of depression. Oftentimes it's isolating, it's removing yourself from, from things that are normal. So, so he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he came to a broom brush, sat down under the tree, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional. I don't claim to be. I don't pretend to be. I have no desire to be, if I'm being honest. And so, so I have to be really careful in diagnosing anything here. That's not what I'm trying to do. Uh, we're having a theological conversation. However, when you read this and you research this, it's clear that something's wrong with Elijah. Something's off. Something's different. Some historians, some scholars say that he's depressed. If that is in fact the case, I have a hard time believing that he's depressed or he's dealing with this because of his lack of faith. You see, just moments before these verses, moments before this, he was standing up taunting his enemy because of his belief in God. The story of Mount Carmel, have you ever heard it? It's fascinating. Where, where Elijah gets, uh, goes up against the prophets of Baal, and they have this deal. They say, whoever's God is able to light this pile of wood must be real. And so the prophets of Baal that they get, they, they stack the wood up and they go through their ritual and process and Elijah is taunting them, he's laughing, he's having a great time. Fire never comes and then it's his turn. And so because he was so confident, because he had so much faith in his God, that's your God by the way, because he had so much faith in them, he said, hey, let, let's go ahead and just add you know, some water to the wood just for fun. And he does. And he prayed. And God rained down fire from heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, if that's not faith, I don't know what is. 
And so, so you have this guy who's praying then moments after that, Lord, take my life. I can't handle it anymore. Faith isn't an issue here. It must be something more. So for us as a church to say that because you have mental health issues, it's because of your faith, I think is biblically inaccurate. Which leads to the next stigma. Mental illness isn't real, but a fabrication by one's consciousness. Proponents of this stigma oftentimes respond to those who are depressed or anxious or whatever it is with the pull up your bootstraps, get over it, get out of your head, and you're going to be fine. I've heard it. I think more often than not, those who take this stance or who see mental illness through this stigma haven't ever experienced mental health struggles. This is something that's really hard to empathize with if you aren't, one, educated in it, or two, haven't experienced it. I, I equate it to, um, to back pain. So, so growing up, I never understood why people who do, did something to their back were so debilitated. Like, they pulled a muscle. Like, it can't be that painful. Like, like you should be able to come into work. You should be able to, to do something, right? Like, I don't understand it. That was until I tweaked my back last year, and I couldn't move without crying. I was in so much pain. Like, I, I couldn't do anything. I sneezed, and I cringed. I had a new appreciation for what people go through who have back pain. I think sometimes that's what happens when we look at mental illness through this stigma because we don't understand, because it's never happened to us, we just can't empathize. And so we, we just say that it's not real. The truth, biblically speaking, again, that's the approach today, biblically and theologically speaking, mental illness is a real struggle. Take a look at what Job says. This is a guy who, by the way, God describes as having uh, the most faith in the world at the time. He was blameless and upright. He was righteous. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. It's a guy that's not right. Something's wrong. David, Israel's greatest king, says, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to You want to get really honest and really vulnerable? Watch this. Luke. Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, this is Jesus, by the way. Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I'm not someone who should be diagnosing anyone, especially the Savior of the world. So I'm not doing that. However, you have to at least admit that something here, something is up. For Jesus, who was both fully God and fully human, meaning he has the same emotions that you and I have, for him to be so, so intently praying and so worried about what was going to happen to him next that he prayed so fervently that the capillaries in his face burst and he began to sweat blood— I think any mental health professional would say, hey, that we should talk. So if Job suffered with mental health, potentially issues, 
if David suffered with mental health issues, if our Lord and Savior struggled, it's probably safe to say that some of us will too. And it's not a made-up thing, but a real thing. The last stigma, and I think this is perhaps the most dangerous, is that the church shouldn't address, acknowledge, or accept mental health out of fear of a negative perception. We have it in our head that because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have to behave a certain way. We have to act a certain way. We have to look and be a certain way. And so we pretend to be something sometimes that we aren't. I'm a proponent of this. I've been the cause of this at times. Like I say one thing up here, and then when I need to go see a counselor, right, because just something's just not right, I drive to Gillette so none of you will see me. I let this out. This is an extremely, extremely dangerous proposition. Jesus spoke about peace time and time and time again. He says, peace I leave with you to his disciples. My peace I give you. He was called the Prince of Peace. Paul wrote that we would have a peace through Jesus Christ that transcends all understanding. And so, so we have it in our head that in order to have that peace, in order to, to claim the peace that we get through Jesus Christ, that we have to somehow have our lives together. That, that, that I shouldn't be dealing with these issues emotionally or mentally. That I, I should push them aside because I have this peace. I'm claiming it. Church, I think it's precisely because we have the peace of Jesus Christ that we're able to endure the situations that we sometimes find ourselves in mentally and emotionally. We don't have to be okay to step into that relationship. In fact, I would argue that Jesus taught that it was okay to not be okay. (laughs) And so if that were the case, and if that's what Jesus told us to live by, then perhaps we shouldn't be afraid to admit the same. Jesus was meeting with um, some tax collectors and Pharisees. It's recorded this way in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing them, Jesus said, it isn't the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I haven't come to call those who have life figured out. I haven't come to simply call those who are okay. I have come precisely for those who aren't. Those are my people. That's why I'm here. And so when we tell ourselves a lie over and over and over again that we have to be okay in order to make this work, that it, it's just not true. It's ridiculous. 
When we say each and every week it's okay to not be okay, those aren't, aren't our words. We're modeling what Christ taught us. That's what this is about. So, so, so if you're not okay, that's okay. If you need help, get help. This is too important and too much is at stake for us to pretend to be something that the church we aren't. And we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid to stand up and say so. I'm afraid that because of these stigmas, we've allowed our mental wellness to determine our value. We look at how life is going and we allow that to change how we value ourselves. So, so in the movie, that's kind of what George was struggling with. He didn't see his value. He couldn't comprehend how important he was. And so the story, fictional story goes, that God sent an angel, Clarence, who was angel second class to rescue him. That was his title. There have been moments in my life where I have wished that God would send me an angel. If he could just show me just how valuable I am. If he could, if he could convince me how important my life is. We, you and me, we were sent Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, to rescue you. How, how much more are you loved how much more are you valued? You want proof of how valuable you are? Open this book up. Turn to any page. It'll tell you. You want proof of how valuable you are? Read Jesus' words. Read the apostles' words. John wrote, this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice to die for our sins. God determined your value, your worth, generations before you ever took your first breath. Your mental wellness, your mental health doesn't determine your value. Jesus did. And here's the, here's the best part of this story. There's nothing there is no amount of not being okay that could ever change that. No, in all these things, Paul wrote, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is our Christ, our Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's your value. That's how important you are. That's why this story, this season is so incredibly, so incredibly valuable for us. See, it's a reminder that no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what we might be dealing with, no matter what scars, what baggage, no matter how, how much we aren't okay, that there was a God who loved you enough 
to send his son to die in your place and your value, your worth was solidified the moment that child took his first breath in a manger because there was no room at the end. That's peace. That's peace this world can't touch. That's peace that, that we cling on to when everything is crumbling around us. That's, that's Christmas story. It's our story. It's yours. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just um, I thank you for the opportunity that, that we just, that we have to come to worship. I am eternally grateful, Father, that this, this relationship that we have, this place that we are sitting, this space that we have right now is a place where we truly can say it's okay that we're not okay. Father, if, if there is someone struggling here this morning, my prayer is that you would give them the, the courage and the boldness to, to, to step up, to, to seek help, to, to, to grab one of their brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I'm not okay. To, to call a doctor or a therapist and say, I need help, I'm not okay. And help us as a church in those moments walk beside them every step of the way. R remembering the hands that were raised here that we were praying for. We ask these things and we come to you today in Jesus' most holy and beautiful name. Amen.